0: All right, so there's 10 chapters left in Deuteronomy. I don't think it'll take that long because twenty, twenty-eight to the end, um, 28 to the end is uh, can be done in a big chunk. So like I said, four to six weeks, I think we'll be done with Deuteronomy and then we can do Isaiah because that's what everyone wanted to do. So Isaiah, it will be. So for for right now, we are still in Deuteronomy 23. I think we'll finish 23 and we can, we'll, we'll make a start on 24. Depending if you guys want to, we can talk about divorce and remarriage and sort of park there and spend most of our time doing that today once we get to it, or we could just just talk about what Deuteronomy 24, the section there says and then just breeze on past it and not park and talk about divorce and remarriage. But if anyone wants to talk about it, we can, we can make a thing of it once we get there. We are in, uh, we're in Deuteronomy 23, starting in verse 15. I think we'll get at least to 24.5 today, or we could power through and finish the chapter if we wanted to. So, uh, Ryan, how's it going? Good to see you. Okay, well, let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to know your word, to want to know your heart and your will for us as your people. Uh, from your instructions to our brothers and sisters from long ago under a different covenant. And please, through your Holy Spirit, apply the word to our lives and help us to want to uh, grow more and more into your son's image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Verses 15 and 16. What does this mean? So we, um, I think the only way to understand verses 15 to 16 is in the context of verse verses nine, nine and following, where he's talking about rules for if you're, if you're making camp and you're out on a war campaign and you're making camp and you know procedures for being clean and unclean during that time. And then you get verse 15 uh, and 16. Don't return slaves to owners if they've escaped and come to you. They can stay with you in your own community or in any place they select from one of your cities, whatever seems good to them, don't oppress them. Can you just tell us Deuteronomy 23 verses 15 and 16. Okay. All right. So what he's saying is if slaves come to you, don't return them to their owners. But we've seen before in Deuteronomy that uh, God allowed the, the Hebrews to have slaves. Slavery wasn't, was different Back then, it wasn't like, uh, the, the, Ameri- it wasn't like the, the the North Atlantic slave trade, where they kidnap people and put them in bondage and put them in ships and take them across the ocean and they're slaves in that sense. Um, slavery was more uh, uh, was more something you, you you did for a temporary amount of time to get yourself back on your feet so you can provide for your family. I, it wasn't uh, it wasn't inherently you know it wasn't this this oppressive evil uh, evil thing. And we saw that the Israelites had a, a rule that every, uh, every seven years, or I could be confusing this because I'm talking off the cuff. I know debts are forgiven every seven years. I, b- I believe slaves are released every seven years as well. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's not meant to be a permanent situation. And then if you wanted to stay because you liked the arrangement so much, you could stay. So why does it say in verses 15 to 16, um, don't return slaves if they've escaped
1: and come to you? Well, whose slaves are we talking about?
0: What do you guys think? I know this is a lot to be hit with at nine thirty on Sunday morning. Whose slaves is Moses talking about? Okay, well, this is generating a lot of passion and discussion. So I think uh, it's talking
2: Israelites oh, slaves, the slaves of the Israelites. Israelites, the slaves
0: of the Pharaoh of Egypt. I think he's talking about um, slaves from. Enemies who they're at war against, because he's talking about rules for your your camp while you're while you're out on a war campaign. And in that context, you have escaped slaves who come to you from other uh, from other nations. Slavery was different in other nations; it wasn't as wasn't as regulated, and it was harsher and more sinister. And so, if you have slaves who come into your lines while you're out at war, you don't need to return them. You can keep them and bring them into your community. Um, We'll talk more about, um, we'll talk more, but no, we might not get to that till next week. So, so there's that. Um, Verses 17 and 18, no Israelite daughter is allowed to be, my translation says a consecrated worker. Um, It really means you're a prostitute. No Israelite daughter is allowed to be a prostitute. Neither is any Israelite son allowed to be a prostitute. Don't bring a female prostitute's fee or a male prostitute's fee to the Lord your God's temple to pay a solemn promise, because both of these things are detestable to the Lord your God. In what context would an Israelite become a prostitute? Like in the temple prostitute? Yeah, the, 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 the fake religions that are surrounding them, they have cultic prostitutes because they believe that, that the myths with the Canaanite fertility gods are, if you, have, if you have as much sex as possible, you'll excite the gods and they'll rain down rain, which is a euphemism for something else, and the crops will be fruitful. So it's really sick and weird. Uh, but that was the, that's why cultic prostitution was such a big thing in the Old Testament is because... You know, the, the idea was that the, the more of this activity you do and make available, the more happy the gods will be, the more rain will shower down upon your crops and the more your crops will be blessed, the more you will be blessed by the fertility gods and goddesses. So have lots of sex and your crops will be great and make the gods happy. So that's that's the thing with that. So he's telling them, no, there's there's moral standards and you guys can't do anything like that. And in Genesis 38, Tamar, who is, who's, who's uh, had a son with Judah and Jesus is descendant from that line, pretended to be a cultic prostitute to lure her father-in-law into having a, a liaison with her. So um, what do you think it means in verse 18 when it says, don't bring, if you do engage in those activities, you can't take money you earn from that and come and, and, and give it to, for my use at the temple. What does that mean? What, Like what are the implications for that? Like you know, fear whatever, you can't
1: bring that in and pay um, the Lord with it because the activity it came from is test to the Lord. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, it's like uh, you've heard of the term blood money. Uh-huh. I mean this would be
1: sex money, I guess
0: Yeah, it's like um, you know, God cares about what we do. So let's let's leave, you know. Let's let's leave the Israelites on the bank of the Jordan River. God cares what you do for a living. He cares what you do for a living, and it needs to be a holy thing. So should a Christian work for Planned Parenthood? And if a Christian does work for Planned Parenthood, does God accept tithes from that person? So that that's how you would think about, is my job a job that is inherently evil or, or immoral? And then if it is, does God even accept or acknowledge anything that I give him that's the fruit of those wages that I earn? So that's where it becomes like less abstract and more, more real. God cares about what we do for a living. And the money that we give, the, the, the fruits of our labor that we provide, carry, it's, it's like they carry some of that, that morality with it. So that's a really interesting way to think. About what we do with our with our lives and our jobs to get money, there's a there's a stigma for good or bad that that's that's attached to the money in your bank account, and the automated transfers that go when you buy something on Amazon with the fruits of your labor, and we might not think of it that way, but God does. So that's how you can consider um, what God thinks about your money. Mm-hmm. Anyone
1: want to talk about that at all? Live in the community of Jewish people if they're not Jewish themselves, uh, because they would be cast out for that kind of sin. Pretty much, mm. you know, their lives as a community that they can be Jewish people not be a part of that, but yet somehow.
0: Yeah, yeah, I you know I God's heart clearly is that you wouldn't be doing something like that, but. They're gonna do something like that, right? And so because you know, God is a realist and he knows people are going to do sinful things, he's trying to regulate, he's trying to regulate the sinful activity so it's within prescribed bounds. Like I just told you about Tamar. If you've never read Genesis 38, Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. Joseph is another. If you've never read Genesis 38, you should read Genesis 38. And you'll see what Tamar does. And Jesus is descended from that liaison with Judah and Tamar. She pretends to be a cultic prostitute in order to lure her father-in-law in so she can conceive and have a child. Um, so God's people are not, are going to do things that are not right. And so rather than just issue uh, one statement that says, be perfect or die, you know, he says, be holy like I'm holy, but then he gives all these instructions on how to regulate bad activity when it happens and then how to uh, repent and get right with God after you do it. But that should never be your you should never view it as a get out of jail free card though. So, but I think you are you're right Ralph. I mean, there is this tension between God doesn't want you to do it, but then he puts rules in place for when you do do it. No, God doesn't want us to God doesn't want us to have sexual relationships with our our parents. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 gives instructions on what to do if something bizarre like that happens. I mean, it's just, it's it's realistic. Any thoughts, questions? Anyone deeply interested in this topic wants to talk more about it? Okay, well, like, uh, yes. Like, uh, people, regulars
1: of the day and stuff. Ah. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I thought that was cool, Yeah um, but then later on, you know, realize it's not it's all the, the things that you're doing with that money are are equal to testable mm-hmm. to the Lord, and so,
0: so, so not, yeah, you know, yeah, so. I think this idea of you know your money has moral has has a moral character attached to it because how did you get it? I think that's probably one of the most one of the most really practical things that we can take away from the section we're going to go through today. Um, there's there's a lot to think about with that, especially if we start thinking about whether our jobs are whether our jobs are things that God would be would be pleased with or not. For some people, there's not even a you know it's not even a question. It's perfectly fine, but. There, perhaps there are some, or the way you do your job, perhaps, that is, that, that might taint the, the fruit of your labor that we should think about. All right, um, verses 19 and 20, why, ah, Jeanine's here with the spaghetti, hello. hello, all right, why do you think this is in verses 19 and 20? It says, Don't charge your fellow Israelites interest, whether on money, provisions, or anything one might love. You can charge foreigners interest, but not your fellow Israelite. Do this so the Lord your God blesses you in all your work and on the land you are entering to possess. I have I have been in Christian circles where pastors said, You see this? Never pay any interest on anything. If you can't buy it with cash, you shouldn't buy it. And so they would be you know, driving 50 you know, year old vehicles and living in broken down houses. And, but they, they believe that I, you know, it, it's evil to charge interest. So I shouldn't get a loan because I'll be disobeying God because they'll charge interest. So what do you guys think this is about? What do you think this means? Why shouldn't you charge interest? You can loan, because, you know, the earlier in Deuteronomy, we learned that you can loan, but every seven years, it's all erased. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a rolling seven years, like 2022, everything's erased. 2029, everything's erased. So if you loan to someone in 2028, they're not going to repay you before everything cancels again. But you still need to loan to them. You can't be tight-fisted because you're like, well, they're not going to pay everything back, so I think I'll just make them wait until after the rollover date. So you can loan, but you can't charge interest. Why is this? Why did God not want him to do this? Ralph, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think in that, Ralph asked about the parable of the talents. He gave different talents to Different people and some of them invested it and gained interest. Another guy like buried it away and hid it and gained no interest. And he uses it's a parable. So, Ralph is asking, you know, so why is there a disconnect between Jesus giving an example of interest being charged, but here no interest is being charged? Uh, I think it's just a parable. He's just talking about everyday life. I don't think yeah. he's making like a moral statement. I think he's just using an example from everyday life to make a point.
2: interest was charged.
0: Yeah. So, so that, that's my answer. I think, I don't think he's trying to make like a moral statement about interest. I think he's just using an everyday example from normal life in the Roman world to make a point. That, that's what I think. I can ponder it more and we can talk more about it, but that's my, that's my off-the-cuff answer. Well,
2: is it like, you know, you give your friends and family the friends and family discount? <laughs> yeah. People that are in your family just because uh, you
0: love them, you don't you give them a special. Why does why does well are people in there are are people inherently nice and are always gonna and are always gonna charge fair rates or are people rude and they're just gonna try and gouge one another. What do you think? What is the human tendency? You sure. uh, <laughs> yeah, you're you're gonna want to make a buck. You're going to want to the human tendency is if you charge interest, you're going to start abusing people. Look at all the payday loan places. If you know people who have go to payday loan things or get loans from predatory lenders who charge, you know, 20 percent interest that's designed so you'll never repay it. Right. And there's laws trying to, you know, make that, you know, curb that and everything. People are going to try to ruin you. They're going to take advantage of you. They're going to abuse you. And it just will happen. It doesn't matter that you're like, but we're all brothers in the Lord. Yeah, okay, sure. I mean, let's be realistic. For you, you might not do that. For me, I wouldn't do that. But there's plenty of people who would with a big smile on their face. You no, know, so this is a brotherly love thing. In the community, don't charge interest to one another. Don't gouge each other. This, you're supposed to be helping each other, not personally profiting. You shouldn't be looking to profit. You should be looking just to help. The foreigner is means like like someone from a different nation who you're doing trade with. He's not talking about, you know, like Ruth, who joins the family. If you join the family, you're not a foreigner per se. You're, You're part of the family, no matter where you're from. So you can charge, you can charge someone from you can charge someone from Egypt interest. (laughs) <laughs> if you want if you if you if you if you do a loan with them, you can charge your brothers and sisters interest because you're supposed to help them not profit from their misfortune or from their need so for today, what that means is when our church when our church gives money to to, to members who 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 need it, we don't charge interest because wouldn't that be cheap? So just think about think about this in a real way. If, if, um, if we charged Haley interest because we loaned her money or gave her money, wouldn't that be really cheap? I mean, how cheap would that be? How could you do that with a straight face? I mean, how can you really do that with a straight face? That'd be rude and cruel. And you'd be like, really? Why? it's it we're supposed to help one another we're not supposed to profit from someone else's misfortune or or bad decisions we're supposed to help one another so that's what's behind this um this so what do you think i don't want to be like dismissive but i told you the story of pastors more from the king james only camp way to the to the right of, of us and me, who say that they they took this to mean that you you can't ever get a loan that charges interest. So they will they will subsist with only cash payments on everything. Do you think that that's what this is saying, or do you agree with it? It's okay. I mean, it's not like uh, um, I have no strong feelings one way or another. If you if if that's the way that you uh, if that's a principle you want to follow, you'll never be in debt. So that's good. Um, so that that's fine. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Have you heard that? Or what are your, any thoughts at all?
2: Yeah, I agree with Ralph. It's not just this verse that I think people decide not to be in debt about. I think there's more verses in the Bible, and it's the principle not to be beholden to unbelievers.
1: We're not talking about loans, we're talking about interest though.
2: Yeah, you have to pay interest on in loans. We can take them out.
0: So yeah, I I think you know there's there's common sense limits to be observed. But what I think, um, I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. That's what I'm, I was just using it as an example. Of, I, I don't think that this verse is addressing you getting a loan for your house. He's talking about um, hes talking about within the, within the family. So today it'd be within the church, within this church or another church, if 10 years from now you're part of a different congregation, within the congregation, or even interpersonally between one another, if you're going to loan a brother and sister money who, who needs it, don't charge them interest because that's cheap.
2: Yeah. I mean, this
1: yeah.
0: this verse two doesn't really line up with that. Anyway, this is talking about you giving a loan to someone and charging interest. I guess it's really it's not really talking about like if I take a loan from a let's say a foreigner, mm-hmm. then it's fine for them to charge me interest, <laughs> right? I mean, presumably. Yeah. So I like yeah, I, I don't
1: think that's what this is saying, but I do agree with the general sentiment of like, best not to be in debt and, and yeah. the rest of the scripture pairs that up but yeah this versus the seemed really fun but yeah there is another verse that's
0: worth red I think that yeah to what you're saying or they say is more you know not to be a Yeah. I think that's in Roman it's at least in Romans 13 8. I haven't looked at it. Um there's probably but I'm sure there are others that you can pull different pieces together to make an idea of what should I think about debt. Um, but this passage really isn't about debt. It's really about brotherly love, treating one another kindly, you don't profit from someone else's um uh, I think what you were saying, is, right,
2: where it's where you're not going to see them as an opportunity. Yeah. For yeah. Like that. You know, you can I mean, you can do investments with other
1: but like, don't see yourself
0: um, Israelite as an opportunity to gain. Yeah. So, yes. You will Yeah. And, you know, what? what's interesting is, you know, God is, God's going way beyond just basic principles. He's trying to give some common guidelines for things that are probably going to happen. I mean, these, you could look at these, it's just a series of random commands. Like, what do they have to do with one another? Why are we talking about, you know, um, your money carries moral weight? And then what does that have to do with not charging interest? And then we're going to talk about vows and the next thing. And then we're going to talk about, um, so they're just a bunch of random things they're just thrown out there he's he's giving some common sense guidelines for real life situations they're going to face that that's what he's doing which is why this is like the more difficult section of of deuteronomy and then we'll get to the the blessings and the cursings which are always a lot of fun and very uplifting maybe not there's like one chapter on blessings and then like four on all the ways god's going to curse you Um, So I guess he's trying to go for a deterrence effect there. So verses 21 to 23, um, if you make a vow or promise to the Lord, you need to keep it. I don't think that's very controversial. Uh, We can talk about it if someone wants, but that's basically what he's getting at. Verses 24 to 25, if you know the story of Ruth, if you've read Ruth, she, uh, she's a foreigner. She's from Moab. Her, her mother-in-law is, is an, is an Israelite. They go back to Israel after, uh, after Ruth's husband, Naomi's son dies. And Ruth, they're very poor. They have no means. And so Ruth goes in, goes to Boaz's fields while they're harvesting. And she goes around and picks up the, the remnants of stuff that falls on the ground after they collect everything. And this is, uh, the farmers were, were ordered to to keep stuff, to not collect everything, collect everything you can. And there's always gonna be stuff left over or lying around, leave it so that poor people in the, in the land have some source of sustenance. Don't wipe everything clean like, you're, like you and your guys are a bunch of locusts. Just leave everything totally barren, leave the stuff you didn't get the first time so people can come by and, and get it. And this is, um, this is, a, it's a solution to help people who, who, are, who are poor. And Ruth is the best example of, take, of, of using that and seeing it in the Bible. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat as many grapes as you like until full, but don't carry any away in a basket. Don't abuse charity, right? If someone's offering you, if someone, I, I, I did this once, this is, really, this is sort of related, but it just occurred to me. We had a speaker come in at my last church Um and she was presenting an evangelistic ministry and we took her out to lunch afterward. And so we got to lunch and she deliberately ordered the most expensive thing on the menu. And it cost her meal was like $50. And she was literally looking at the menu. Ooh, I'm gonna get the steak. It looks really good. It's like $34 for the steak. And then she got dessert and it cost over $50. And I didn't say a word, and it was fine. But I was so I was taken aback at how she deliberately ordered the most expensive thing because she knew she wasn't paying for it. And that's not that's not a code word saying, if I take you out to lunch, only get the dollar menu. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying that it was obvious that's why she ordered it. And it was it really it really rubbed me the wrong way because uh, I, I think she was abusing our charity uh, and laughing about it. So yeah, it is messed up. I mean. Yeah. um, So there's that principle. Um, If you go into your neighbor's grain field, you can pluck ears by hand, but you are not allowed to cut any off your neighbor's grain with a sickle. So he's saying, you know, in Ruth's situation, you're not supposed to take advantage. Ruth's not supposed to back her pickup truck to the field and collect, you know, everything she can. She can collect what she can carry and, and take away. You're not supposed to abuse the the charity. Because then there's only nothing left for anyone else who wants to come by as well. You just steal everything. Uh, and Ruth could say, but I, I can. And then God would say, well, yeah, but you know, you're not supposed to back your F-350 up and load the whole bed up. I mean, come on. What about everyone else? So these are laws to address Ruth and her F-350. Yeah. I'd
2: like to bring it to an up-to-date example. Like, When Sammy comes over to babysit and I say, help yourself to anything in the refrigerator. And then I come back and he's got bags and bags and all
0: that (laughs) stuff.
1: That would be wrong. Yeah. We would be hungry. That's right.
0: That's right. So, one bag. One bag. Yeah. So, I mean, this is common. Like, this shouldn't even need to be said, right? Because you should just know, oh, I shouldn't take that much. But some people are like that. Like the lady who ordered the steak, I still remember that actually. I haven't thought about it for years until just now, I remember. I don't remember what she said when we had her do her presentation, but I remember her ordering that steak. Anyway, um, it- Some but, are just, some people are just gonna do
2: that. I mean, yeah you know, no matter- Yeah. What, um, what it is. Yeah, you know, and- I mean, even, even
1: if, and what do you do? I mean, that's kind of weird
2: then it puts you in an uncomfortable yeah. position of what to say to them, or just let them do it. Yeah. Well, I've had to, I've had kids come through the buffet. We're having the buffet today, all-you-can-eat buffet. And I've had kids, you know, in the past run to the front of the line and take tons of food and then throw half their plate away. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> I started taking it upon myself to say, we're going to honor the seniors to go first. Mm-hmm. Kids can go, can wait and take all that you want, but eat all that you take. That's the rule. You don't take more than you're going to eat. But they just, you see a bunch and you just think it's free. It's a big buffet. I can take all I want.
0: I attended a I'm church. I attended a church potluck at the chapel at Naval Air Station, Siginella. Starla and I did. So this is a long time ago. This is uh, 17 years ago. And they're have they're having a, a potluck afterward and this is our first time going to the chapel I don't know anyone and we're going through the line and I get there's a huge plate of cookies so I take two cookies and someone yells at me because I took two but I wasn't being like that there were tons of cookies so that was okay but I was really I was really angry I was like how dare you it's only two cookies I didn't take five what's wrong the cookie wasn't even that good or maybe I was just upset who knows uh, who knows? I prefer to think that I was in the right. But anyway, okay. So now we get to now we get to twenty four. This is the passage Jesus quotes when he's asked about divorce. So we can do two things here, and I don't care which one it is. Um, we can just talk about Deuteronomy twenty four and just move on at high speed, or we can stop and we can talk about marriage and divorce. There are millions of different ideas about divorce in the Christian world. So we can talk about it or we can just, just breeze through and just talk about Deuteronomy 24 and that's it and just continue on. Does Anyone have a preference? Is there, is there does someone just don't, they just don't want to talk about it? Okay. All right. So verse, uh, so we're going to do verses one to four. Deuteronomy 24, verses one through four. And then we'll go to Matthew 19. So this is what it says. Let's say a man marries a woman, but she isn't pleasing to him. And this, your translation might say something different than this is the, the issue that Jesus faces. She isn't pleasing to him because he's discovered something inappropriate about her. We don't know what this thing is. The, 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 the phrase can mean many things. They can interpret it really strictly as some sort of sexual indiscretion, or you can interpret it really broadly. There's just something about her he doesn't like, doesn't matter what it is. So we'll get to that in a second. So he writes up divorce papers, hands them to her and sends her out of his house. Goodbye. She leaves his house and ends up marrying someone else. But this new husband also dislikes her, writes up divorce papers, hands them to her and sends her out of his house or suppose the second husband dies. These are all hypotheticals to get to verse four because verse four is the only command in this thing. Your translation might say, he shall write a bill of divorce. It doesn't really mean that. The only command in verses one through four is in verse four. So these are just hypotheticals to get to this one situation in verse four. In this case, if this happens, two husbands, The first husband who originally divorced this woman is not allowed to take her back and marry her again after she's been polluted in this way because the Lord detests that. Don't pollute the land the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. So the situation, obviously, she is in the wrong, first husband divorces. We can talk about why she's in the wrong in a minute, but she did something wrong and he divorces her. She goes to husband number two. Husband number two is out of the picture. Either he doesn't like her or he dies, but he's gone. It doesn't matter what happened to him. He's, just, he's gone, you can just erase him. hit delete, highlight, delete. So now she's alone, but she wants to go back to her first husband. It doesn't matter why, he's just giving a hypothetical. In this case, the first husband may not take her back. And he talks about how she's been polluted or she's been defiled uh, in this way. And this is a really hard saying because what God's points, people wonder, well, what's God's point? Why can't he go back to the, why can't she go back to her first husband? Maybe they love each other. Maybe they wanna try again. Maybe they've solved all their differences, you know? And God says, no, she's been polluted. There's something about a second marriage that breaks Whatever bond used to exist with the first marriage that makes it so. In this case, God does not want her to go back um, because that 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 bond is is with the bond is with now with the second husband in some respect. And so people have wondered what on earth this means. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and what I'm going to do is just uh, ignore your question because I don't want to answer it. And we're going to talk about something else because when Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it, but I've, yeah, it's that's a tough question. I'm just sort of joking, but not really. So Jesus, when the Pharisees come to Jesus in Matthew 19, they they twist the point of the passage. The point of this passage is just to talk about remarriage. They just give the hypotheticals to get to the point where he can give an explanation about remarriage. That's what this four verses are about. You can't go back to your first husband because the, whatever bond used to be there is now, is now broken because she's, she's gone to someone else. You could flip it if you wanted. He went to someone else. But in Matthew 19, all that the Pharisees want to focus on is what does it mean that the first husband found something inappropriate in her? What does it mean? In Matthew 19, it says, I'll help if I didn't go past Matthew. When Christians think about divorce, they usually go to Matthew 19 and they say, Jesus said divorce only on the grounds of adultery or sexual immorality. That's it. God said it. I believe it. That makes it so. The problem is, is that this is not the only place where divorce is spoken of. And Jesus is only answering a direct question about Deuteronomy 24. He's not talking about the other places we could go. He doesn't mention First Corinthians, well, 1 Corinthians hadn't been written yet, but if your unbelieving spouse deserts you, you're free to go. Exodus 21, uh, verses seven to 10. If your spouse fails to provide you food, clothing, marital affection, which could mean caring and loving all the way to actual relations with one another. If those things aren't in place, Exodus 21 says the wife can walk away. That's not God's heart, but there, it can happen. And it's really clear. Jesus isn't addressing any of that in Matthew 19. He's just answering a question about how to understand Deuteronomy 24. So in Matthew 19, we read this and just interrupt me if something I'm saying doesn't make sense. He says, when Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee and came to the area of Judea on the east side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed. Some Pharisees came to him in order to test him. So this is not a genuine question. They said, does the law allow a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That's their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. He's discovered something inappropriate about her. You had some Jewish, so, some Jewish interpreters like two schools of thought. I'll just make it simple. One school of thought was he's just, t- Moses was just talking about sexual immorality because the word can mean that, adultery or stuff like adultery. Another school was like, it's just something that's inappropriate. She made the food the wrong way, out. Like any reason, that's the interpretation that the Pharisee in Matthew 19 takes. Any reason at all, anything. So there's two completely different schools of thought about how to interpret it. And they're both influential and they're both out there. Okay, and so they're asking Jesus to test him. They want to, they want to discredit him. He's going to take one side or the other. So they ask him, so any reason? Is, is, that, the, is that the exception? Any reason at all, yes or no? Jesus answered in Matthew 19, four haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female? And God said, because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife and the two will be one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. So Jesus quotes Genesis. Did Jesus
1: answer the question? Did he answer
0: the question? No. He just he dodged the question and says, hey, God doesn't want divorce, guys. Let's let's set that aside. God doesn't want divorce. Haven't you read he wants husband and wife to stay together? You grow up in a marriage, in a in a family unit, and you leave and you form your own family unit. That's that's God's heart, right? That's his heart. That's what he wants. That's the ideal. And so the
1: question did he
0: ask? Yeah, yeah, he, he asked them a question, but he didn't directly answer. It's like he, he, he tosses something back at them. So Jesus does that a lot, and so, but they know he didn't answer. So in verse seven, they, 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 they press the attack. The Pharisee then said to him, then why did Moses command us to give a divorce certificate and divorce her? Well, Moses didn't command it. He didn't say you had to divorce your wife. They could have worked it out. So the Pharisee is pushing, you know, Moses said we, we, we could divorce for any reason. So if God wanted husband and wife to stay together, why did he command us to divorce? But God didn't command to divorce. He provided an exception if circumstances warranted it. But you see, this is how the scripture is twisted. That's not God's heart. And that's Jesus's point. You're, you're asking it the wrong way. You're coming, looking for an out can we divorce for any reason? And Jesus is like, that's not, that's not the point that that's not the point. God's heart is you state, they stay together. And the Pharisee, well, divorce is permitted. So God does allow divorce. He wants us to divorce. Jesus replied, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts are unyielding. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. Now he explains what this inappropriate thing is. Is it the strict interpretation or the anything interpretation? Verse nine, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, the King James says adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus interprets Deuteronomy 24 one to mean some sort of sexual unfaithfulness. Now Christians differ between, are we talking about strict adultery, like the actual physical act, or are we talking about other stuff, you know, on the road to that? So your translation might say adultery, making it, you know, the ultimate, or it could just be sexual immorality, which is a broader category. And you have to, Christians have to decide what that, that means. I think it's the broader, I think it's the broader category. So Moses says, listen, Deuteronomy 24 is about sexual unfaithfulness. It's not about just getting rid of her because you don't like her for any reason. His disciples said to him, if that's the way things are between a man and his wife, then it's better not to marry. Why do they say that? Why do they say that? Well, think, about, think about this. He has just said that this is not a blanket get out of deal free card. It's a narrow thing for sexual immorality. And the disciples respond with, heck, it's better not to even get married. Why would they say that? Because they want to be able to get rid of someone. Yes. Because like they were raised, probably raised under the school of thought that said any reason at all. And now they're like, as just in their flesh, they're like, oh. That's a little tighter than what I than what we were taught. Maybe it's better just to forget the whole thing. So that's why they ask, That's why they respond that way. Whoa, that's so stricter than what I'm used to hearing. And the Pharisees are representative of this anything, any reason. Dumber doesn't matter what it is. Get rid of her. He says in verse eleven, not everybody can accept this teaching, but only those who've received the ability to accept it. And he goes on and describes people who've um, uh, describes people who who can make do without marriage, like people who've um, made themselves celibate and functionally they've they, they they have no sexual life because they've devoted themselves to God. So Jesus says, if that's the way you want it to go, you can do that if you can do it. But sometimes you can't. So he's saying, I, I wouldn't be too hasty to to to, to what to wipe, uh, throw marriage off the table here. So that's, that's the passage from Matthew 19. And what many, what many well-meaning Christians do is they take Matthew 19 as the only word on divorce. And so they say, yep, there's no adultery, can't happen, you're stuck. But there are other passages that, that talk about adultery. Jesus is only answering a question about Deuteronomy 24. He's not answering a question about give me the entire story on divorce. He's just answering a question about what Deuteronomy 24-1 means. Does that make sense? Because you have Exodus 21. Yeah, 21. I think it's, I'm losing my head. I think it's Exodus 21, 7-10, to 10, where there are at least three criteria for, for a wife to walk away from her husband. In Exodus 21, it says, If he takes another woman for himself, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or marital rights. If he doesn't do these three things for her, she will go free without any payment for no money. Deuteronomy 21, verses 7 to 11. Food, clothing, marital rights. Are you abusing your wife and refusing to provide her with sustenance that she needs for the household? Are you abusing your wife by refusing to provide her with clothing? Are you not providing food and shelter? Are you withholding food and shelter from her in some way? Are you, are you one of those people who controls all of the money and only gives $100 to, if, if that's the way you work things out and your wife does the shopping, do you only give $100 to your wife and tell her to make it work for the entire, for the entire month while you go and gamble? So, so, so this is where it becomes real. Are you denying your wife food and shelter functionally? Starving your family because you're stealing all the money to go do other stuff with it or to buy secret things or to have a secret life. Marital rights, that can mean a bunch of things. It doesn't have to just mean sex. I think it probably means the the whole, the whole spectrum of love and affection, including romance, that is supposed to, that is supposed to be the marriage relationship. Now, that's really hard to like make a rule. Well, what does that look like? I think, I think that Christians need to look at the whole picture and ask for wisdom. But in general, these are, these are qualifications that allow, that allow for divorce within God's family. It doesn't mean God wants it, but it's there. 1 Corinthians 7, unbeliever walks away. Two people are married, one believer, one unbeliever, the unbeliever walks. You're free. You, don't, you can pursue. You don't have to. Paul says that explicitly. So I have a large, I have a long thing that I wrote uh, about this, but there's at least at least four things. Um, Food, clothing, marital rights, the whole matrix of love and romance and affection that are supposed to characterize a marriage. Um, Unbelieving spouse walks away, deserts. So the This is the whole, we're getting toward a bigger picture about divorce than just Matthew 19. But who am I? I mean, uh, this is not the, I don't have the last word. You ask five pastors, you're going to get five different answers on what about divorce. I've known pastors who say, never divorce, never, unless adultery, and that's it. I've spoken to I've spoken to wives who feel they can't leave because they're in an abusive relationship, not at this church, but years ago. and she felt that she couldn't leave because her husband uh, sometimes is physically abusive but um, had never cheated on her. And the counsel she received was there's been no adultery. I'll pray for you. So this is very real, it's very really personal, and you all may have heard different interpretations. So that's that's my 10-second that's my version on uh, divorce in, in the Christian life, springboarding from Deuteronomy 24. Do you guys have thoughts, questions? You're free to, you're free to, to, to come in if, if you need to. Okay. Okay. you guys have thoughts, questions? I think in a case where the guy is super abusive, there's a lot of women.
1: Yeah. 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 So I think these
0: days that may, might take look at I mean, it's the Bible telling us to do this, but it's also time to change, I think. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you, it takes wisdom. You, you can, and it's very, this is a slippery slope because you don't want to be, on the one hand, I do say, listen, don't just be, you know, use some wisdom and look beyond the exact letter and just think about the bigger picture here. But then that could be a license for people to do whatever they want. But when, when God says that a wife can leave, if there's neglect for food, clothing, or marital rights, I think beating your wife sort of, sort of fits, fits in there. It doesn't say beating your wife, but it, does it really not mean that? I mean, so you have to, you have to think and ask God for wisdom about this. I would never tell a spouse who's being beaten that she has to stay because there's been no adultery. I think that is a I think that's a really bad way to read the scripture. So, uh, you may disagree, but I'm just talking about real things that, you know, what, take go away from the clouds and come down to real life. Men beat their wives. Does she have to stay? Because they're both Christian. So. If he's a true Christian in the first place, none of those things necessarily would take place. Yeah. I I think because your heart is going to be more tender if you're uh, mm-hmm. towards your wife. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I also agree with the sentiment that the, my commentary up here says
2: about Matthew Beat and it just has to—it's basically for suffered you to put away your wives, and the commentary part is tolerated a relaxation of the strictness of the marriage bonds, not as of approving it, but to prevent still greater evils. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you're like the,
0: the beating, and then we talk about like you know people dying over that. I think that that applies there too, because that's not what God wanted for yeah yeah and that raises that raises the question where at some point this is somewhat controversial so i'll just suggest it but your comment the comment you made suggested as well at some point is it better to walk away like i know theoretically i know god can solve everything but at some point is it best for both parties to walk away is there ever does that point exist or Should it never exist? And that is a huge point of disagreement. Well, but if the person, if there's hardness of heart going back to Matthew, if there's hardness of heart, there's no, there's very little, unless God intervenes Mm -hmm. in whoever has got the hardness of heart, there's not going to be a change. Yeah. So, you know, our, 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 if there's hardness of heart and there is no desire to change on one or both or you know, a combination, are, are the two people consigned to exist in a state of perpetual misery for the rest of their lives? So this takes, you can't just give a blanket answer, but this takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of prayer and a lot, again, a lot of wisdom to, to try and help Christians who care enough to ask these questions, to navigate what should we do? And at what point are all avenues exhausted, and all lesser means failed? At What point is that point? So it's a really hard topic, but thankfully I've answered all the questions in 20 minutes. So, so there's always that. You know. If anyone has questions, we can talk more about this next week. So if you wanna go back and look at some stuff or think about what you, you've been taught before and you, you really wanna revisit this and really talk about it, we can do that. Next week, and I'd be glad to do it. But if no one has anything, we'll just move on. But we'll continue next week uh, with that. And uh, I think it's important discussion to have, especially if you have questions. You can always come and ask, and um, we can always talk much, much more in a much more personal, uh, personal way. That's maybe not so clinical um, if we're talking about a real situation in real life. So um, let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, we love you. We want to do what your word says. Help us to understand your word, to make it real in our lives. And please speak to us and guide us through your Holy Spirit as we read your word and seek to make it real in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.